Yeah, that was so good. Yeah, thank you, Lauren, for helping us with that. Um, if you were unsure, we're actually doing a series on the Ten Commandments, right? So there you go. It's good to see you this morning. And I love uh, Pastor Gary's prayer about finding a broken wall and fixing it. I love that. So good. If you're new to the Bible, um, I think your context is Nehemiah, right, where there's the walls are down in Jerusalem. And yeah, once you understand that you're on the planet for a purpose, a big part of that is to go repair the world, make it a better place in some way. So I guess I'll throw that out to you to think about what broken wall are you fixing? And um, there, that's the end of the sermon. We could go home now, right? Just chew on that and yeah. So, um, but just a, an update for those of you who are members of King Street, uh, we have an annual meeting planned for next Sunday, which is March the 3rd. It's important that all of our members be a part of that meeting uh, to make every effort to be there. Uh, stay tuned, watch your email inbox because there'll be some details on how to register for that meeting. Very important that you register in advance and then that you're, um, you've, you've got all the details around getting on the Zoom platform because we're going to have an online annual meeting again this year. And uh, for those of you who uh, are interested, Pastor Kristen Malcolm is starting an adult elective this Wednesday at 7 p.m. called uh, Overcoming Depression, I believe it is. Next Wednesday, that's very important. So that's actually March the 6th, you're right, at 7 p.m. So not this Wednesday, the following Wednesday. So spread the word. Um, at this time of the year, too, when it's still a little bit frigid out and we're getting started in the new year somewhat, um, it's okay to not be okay or to just come and learn on how you can help people in your circle of influence. So uh, Pastor Kristen's qualified to teach on that, and I think it'll be an excellent, excellent elective starting on Wednesday, March the 6th. Okay, so um, the Ten Commandments, we're calling this Broken Tablets because we have broken the tablets. Um, all of us have. Moses did once, and we have been doing it ever since. Uh, we, we break the Ten Commandments um, in many ways. Um, and uh, as we talked about last week, um, the Western world has been largely built upon the foundation of this Judeo-Christian kind of uh, big values idea of the Ten uh, Sayings, as our Jewish friends call them, or the Ten Commandments. The word commandment carries a lot of um, perhaps negative associations for us, um, but they are very, very important sayings or commandments, but they are most definitely not suggestions or recommendations. They are directives, we could call them imperatives, in fact, that we do well to build our life upon. Um, a healthy, functional society, in fact, a healthy, functional life, family, community, world, um, would do well to build upon these foundational sayings. So if you're with us last week, you'll recall we started with the first saying or the first commandment, and today we will um, focus on the second one. There are 613 commandments in the Older Testament. We're going to stop after 10, um, but there are a lot of directives. Um, you could call them guiding principles that really help us. And so becoming familiar with the ways of God is really, really important for building a good and beautiful life. In fact, we do harm to ourselves and to our future if we become ignorant of the ways of God. And as we say here at King Street, the ways of God work. They just do. They provide a lift. Um, they help us make progress along this adventure of building a, a good and beautiful life. 
So um, our teaching theme this morning is going to be predicated on this idea that God warns us very clearly to avoid what we could call knockoffs. You know, if you, uh, if you go um, looking for um, some expensive watch, per, perhaps in New York City, and somebody opens up their trunk lid and offers you one for a really good price, you might want, take it, Pastor Gary says take it. You might also want to make sure it's authentic and that it's real. Um, so there, there are, are knockoffs that we can have a, a tendency to perhaps uh, flirt with or maybe even uh, adopt and build them into the fabric of our life. And God says, be really, really careful about how you build your life. And that would be consistent with Jesus too, right? Jesus says, Listen, uh, if you want to build a life that, that is standing after the storm comes, the wind and the waves will crash against all of the structure of our lives at some point along the way. If we build on sand, according to Jesus, it's problematic. If we build on the rock, which is consistent with knowing his ways and obeying them, then after the wind and waves come, we'll still be, still be left standing. So um, when we are at our best, we recognize that we are made in God's image and likeness. That's the truth of every person in this place. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And when we are not at our best, we project our image onto God and make him in our image and our likeness. Is that not true? Sometimes we think about God and we think that he's a lot like us when maybe um, we were called to be a lot more like him. And so we want to be at our best where we say, yes, I want to receive that uh, and acknowledge that I've been designed and made to reflect his image and to become a recovered, fully recovered image of God. Uh, For now, there are slight and sometimes dramatic distortions about who we are. And thanks be to God that with the help of his spirit and his word and the people of God, that we are all on a journey, those of us who are learning to follow Jesus closely and personally, we're learning what it means to make a more full recovery of the image of God in us, that one day that work will be complete on the other side. Until then, we are all somewhat, can we say, under construction. And uh, that is the truth about us. All right, so if you're able, would you stand with me? This is our passage to ponder, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, and then 13b through 14. And if you're comfortable reading or reciting with me uh, so that your neighbor can hear you, that would be wonderful. So let's read this together. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. So the second commandment, uh, again, you'll find the Ten Commandments, the Ten Sayings, in two different parts of the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Older Testament. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 is where we'll go, but they're also found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so the second commandment, we'll start with the first two verses because there's a reason why um, God set up like a preamble to to the 10 sayings or the 10 commandments. It goes like this. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
So God brought the Hebrew people out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery, not to enslave them again, but to keep them free. And so the commandments are never intended to make us slaves again, but to actually keep us free. So when we say yes of our own free will to do and to follow the ways of God, uh, we actually move towards continued freedom in our life. We're not enslaved, we're free people. So here's the second commandment, verse four. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, the word of the Lord. So three thoughts for us this morning. Um, The first one is this. Creatures, that's all of us in this room, are not capable of capturing the fullness of our creator. We are just unable to do that. Sometimes our small minds think that they're bigger than they actually are. And we think we know more than we actually do. Um, We are learning what it means to understand or to have an understanding of God, but we just don't have full capacity for that with these limited minds that we have this side of heaven. The prophet Jeremiah says these words. This is what the Lord says in chapter 9 of his self-titled book. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. They don't necessarily understand me, but they have the understanding to know me. One of my favorite profs in my undergrad a few decades ago now, Dr. Ron Kidd, I heard him give a scripture talk about this passage, and he kind of drilled into that part, and he said, we are growing a capacity. We have a measure of understanding, but we don't fully understand God. Anyone in this room today believe that you have a full working understanding of God? You know, we we have these sort of shadowy glimpses. We've been given a um, window, so to speak, that seems a bit smudged to look through and peer in to see the divine, the transcendent, the beauty of the one true God, who is spirit, right? Um, Dr. Gordon Fee, who is a Pentecostal scholar, he used to say that the hardest member of the triunity, the triune God, to get our heads around is the Holy Spirit. And the reason why is we can kind of picture Father, we can kind of picture Son, but Spirit, there's intangibility. And when Jesus was trying to explain Spirit to a religious leader, Nicodemus, he used the analogy of the wind. (laughs) It's like, well, that didn't really help, right? You see where, you know, you see its effects. It comes from here, goes from there, but you can't grab a hold of it. It's sort of elusive to you. And so I think there is something very beautiful about all of us in this space today coming to terms with the fact that we have a measure of understanding of God, but we truly don't understand him. And so sometimes the best thing for us to do is say, 
I don't necessarily get it. I want to keep digging and I want to keep learning, but I truly just come to terms to say, I submit, I surrender. I'll do it your way, God. You know better than me. And so as creatures, we have a limited capacity to um, comprehend God. And, uh, but this is what's true as well. Creation calls out to us, as we read earlier today. Listen to what appears to be a contradiction, but we need to understand the genre of the text. Psalms are poems, right? Um, listen to the first four verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They're making announcements. Day after day, they pour forth speech. They're speaking, apparently. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Oh, here comes the contradiction. But remember, it's poetry. They have no speech. Day after day, they pour forth speech, but they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. What? Their words. I thought they have no words. Their words to the ends of the world. I love the psalmist. He's actually saying to us, look up, pay attention. There's a massive invitation. Creation is calling out to us, revealing something to us about the goodness of God, the beauty of God. Creation is inviting us. This is why it's so healthy to go out and walk in nature and just take a few moments to put your phone down and just listen. I love the spring when the birds start chirping away and singing in the morning and just looking at the cloud formations and the trees that are budding in the spring, which is not far off, thanks be to God, right? But just to put yourself out into God's beautiful sanctuary. There is so much life there. I have a friend that I go for a walk up at Heber Downs once every six or eight weeks. Rich conversation and just enjoying the beauty of what he and I called forest bathing. Just going for a, going for a bath in the forest. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. This is what the writer of Psalm 19 is getting at. Listen, creation's calling out to us. In Romans chapter 1, for since the creation, creation itself points us to our creator, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, remember the intangibility of God, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so there's this like intangibility and yet I can clearly see something like signposts that point me toward God. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And here's the problem. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They just thought they were responsible for all the good things that came into their life. They didn't acknowledge that the blessings were from above. They neither glorified him as God nor gave, gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Isn't that interesting? When we divorce ourselves from the knowledge of God, our thinking, though we might think becomes more sophisticated, it actually becomes more futile. That's an interesting idea. As we move further away from the knowledge of God, our thinking can become futile and our foolish hearts can become darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. Ah, creation points to our creator. 
But the danger for us is when we make too much of creation and when we actually begin to say, I'm going to um, bow down and worship. And it might not feel literally, but we build our life around something. You know, family is really important. Those of you who are married here today, you understand that's important for us to treasure our, our, our spouse, our husband, our wife, and we're supposed to love and cherish. We're supposed to respect and honor. These are very important things. And God himself says it's not good that we be alone, so he's going to make a helper suitable for us. And so those who are married, you know that there's a leaving and there's a cleaving, a two become one flesh. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea that God came up with for us. But unless a husband and wife are going to die simultaneously, and that happens, I guess, on occasion, very rarely, but it happens, one person will go first. And this is the way life works. Family is a beautiful thing. Marriage is a wonderful institution that God designed. But anything can become an idol. God created marriage, but if we make more of it than we ought to, God always needs to be primary. Everything else is secondary. Everything else. Even our children. Thanks be to God, I have two wonderful daughters. They're amazing. But they're secondary. My wife's amazing. She's secondary. God is first and foremost inviting me to order my life around him. At the very center. And this is the way the ways of God work. If I put God at the very center and I order my life around him, guess what happens? I'll probably become a much better husband, and probably a much better father, and probably a much better pastor, and whatever else God assigns me a place of service in the world. But if I try to just focus on secondary things and treat them like they're primary, I won't be at my absolute best because what's at the center informs everything else. And so it's absolutely critical that we understand the second commandment, God says, anything could become an idol. Anything in God's good creation, we could make an image of it, and we could bow down and worship it, and it can become incredibly problematic. So God warns us against making knockoffs the real deal. He warns us about making knockoffs the real deal. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire. God spoke, and there was nothing that they saw. Therefore, he says, watch yourselves very carefully. Very carefully, he says, so that you do not become corrupt. That's interesting. There's a corruption that happens to us. So that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, something else that becomes primary. An image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed, he says, into bowing down to them and worshiping things. The Lord your God has a portion to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, he says, you're to be different. The neighboring nations all around you, they make gods. There's a big menu of gods that they, they make for themselves. In fact, even Aaron with the Hebrew people made a calf. They started celebrating around this golden calf. 
And it was right on the heels of God communicating with Moses. And this fellow's up the mountain for 40 days, and he said, he's not coming back, so let's make something that we can worship. And it was to represent God. And God said through his servant Moses, don't make anything that represents me because you'll never be able to capture me. There will be aspects of God's person and character that a golden calf can never capture. And so any effort that we make at saying, here is something that represents God, there, it will be limited in its function. And the neighboring nations, they, they understood that idols were just normal and commonplace. And uh, so today's teaching is probably less about you going home and burning literally an idol in your home. It's probably not the case for most of us in this space. But there can be the creation of something else. So the text continues and says, Do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you, brought you out of the iron smeltering furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. The invisible hand of God parted the Red Sea and brought them out. Uh, wasn't tangible. The effects were very tangible, but there is the intangible spirit of the one true God working in the world and working in his people. So creatures are not capable of capturing the fullness of their creator. That's our first thought. Here's the second thought out of our second commandment that we're considering today. God desires us. I like that. Uh, Genesis chapter three, we go back to the very beginning of the story. The first man, the first woman decide that they want to live independent of God, do life their own way. They think they're wiser than God. We got a corner on something here. They get a little help from the serpent who says, God's holding out on you. He's not as good as you think he is. And so they go and they eat from the forbidden tree. And we know the rest is history. But the first man, the first woman were naked, felt no shame at the beginning. But then all of a sudden they wanted to cover themselves and they hid from God. And so God comes looking for his friends. It's really cool. In Genesis 3, verse 9, he calls out to them, where are you? He knew where they were. He wanted them to know where they were. And he wanted to go for a walk with his friends. This is what God does. He comes and he wants to go for a lifelong walk with friends. And he's waiting for people to say, hey, I'll come out from behind my covering, the hiding place that I'm in. I'll present myself to you, God, and let's go for a walk. The rest of Scripture is about God reaching for people to say, do you want to go for a walk? It's a very, very beautiful metaphor. Later, like two chapters over, there's this gentleman shows up in the Bible named Enoch and says he walked with God. Others lived X amount of days, but he walked with God. There's a difference between living out your years and walking with God. So here's my question for you today. Are you walking with God? Are you going for a walk with God? Is there a relationship? When you walk with somebody, you go somewhere, and you generally, for the most part, commune with the person you're walking with, or are you just kind of living out your days? I highly recommend for you to not miss the point of your life and to make sure you go for a walk with God. Uh, the prophet Micah, 
Chapter five, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what the prophet said. And what about our Lord Jesus? One of my favorite verses, the humanity of Christ. Mark's gospel includes this narrative or commentary, I guess, or narration around Jesus. He's picking his 12 disciple friends because he's going to teach them, he's going to commission them because he knows he's not going to be here forever. Um, But beyond teaching and kind of commissioning, he just wants their friendship. And the text says, Jesus, he appointed the 12 that they might be with him. That's the point. He invites these 12 disciple friends to do life with him. This is our God. He wants to go for a walk with friends. And so maybe this helps us understand this part of Exodus 20, the second saying, the second commandment. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In our minds, we might immediately think control freak, all right? If a husband or a wife is jealous, they become possessive, controlling, That's not really the fullness of this idea here. There's a difference between envy, which is coveting the second commandment, or sorry, the 10th commandment, um, where we want what we don't have, right? We'll get to that at some point in the near future, where we want what our neighbor has, what he drives, who he's married to, maybe the kind of house he, he lives in, maybe his job. We want what we don't have. It's envy or coveting. Jealousy is actually concern about losing what is already ours. When God says he's jealous, he doesn't want to lose us. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We belong to God. We are rightfully his. But when we decide to not go for a walk with him, When we decide to do life our way, put secondary things at the center and move him to the edges, uh, God is jealous for us. He's concerned about losing us because he desires us. Every person in this room wants to be wanted. Isn't that what single people kind of crave, whether it's friendships or perhaps even a romantic relationship? We want to be desired. We want to be wanted. And that's why it's so painful if you've ever been a, a young kid playing sports and I'll take Johnny, I'll take Jill, I'll take Susie, I'll take Mark. And everybody gets picked except me at the very end, right? I'm, I'm the one overlooked, cast aside. It's like, did anybody not want me? Like, we all want to be wanted so badly. And when we don't fully understand and say a big emphatic yes to the want that God speaks over us, we will be on some pursuit, and it'll never be enough. We'll always try to fill this space with things that were never designed to occupy that space. But once we say, I'm pursued and loved and desired and wanted, and I say yes, and I begin to cultivate a want and a desire and a pursuit of God, then all these other relationships that are secondary, wow, they take on a greater meaning. Now I actually come to the relationships from a posture of giving and contributing, not just fill me up because I want to be wanted. I already know I'm wanted. I get to express and lavish on others. 
And so um, God desires us. We have a desire to be desired. We all want to be wanted. That's why it's so painful to be considered unwanted in any way. And God is jealous but not envious for us. And uh, thanks be to God that every person in this room is, uh, is desired by God. All right, and here's our last thought for today. God's love is exponentially greater than our sin. Exponentially greater than our sin. At first glance, this is a tough passage. Um, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children. This doesn't seem very fair, does it? Punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Yeah, children punished for the sins of their parents? That doesn't seem very fair. Scripture seems to say that we all kind of bear up the consequences of our, of our own experience and our own choices. So what's this all about here? Um, intergenerational consequences for sin, what does this mean? In Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, here's what Moses writes. He says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. In other words, we're responsible for us. We will pay the price for our choices. This is the way life goes. If it wasn't last week, it was the week before where we talked about sin delivers its own reward, right? It's inherently built into it. It's the way reality works. If you want to build a life predicated on telling lies, guess what? Those lies will catch up to you. If you want to build a life of not being faithful and breaking your promises all over the place, those broken promises will catch up to you. It's the way life works. Sin patterns carry power. Always remember that. Sin patterns carry power, which is why God warns his people to be careful to obey. So, Deuteronomy 4, only be careful. Watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. We remember things, we have experiences, but they fade. I remember the first time I walked with someone who died. I spent considerable time with this individual. It was a wonderful experience for me, probably 25 years ago. Hard and beautiful all at the same time. And I remember going to see a friend after he died. I tried to get to the hospital, and I missed him by just a few minutes. And I phoned my buddy after, and I said, I don't think my life will ever be the same. He said, no, it will be. He said, these experiences that we have in life, they can feel in the moment so life-altering but in many ways, because of the nature of our memories, they can become fleeting very fast. Moses is writing that here. He says, don't forget what you've seen. Don't let them go. Hold on tightly to them. He says, teach them to your children and to their children after them. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. This idea of sin patterns carry power is very, very important. 
Um, when my wife and I choose to make, I hope, a whole host of amazing, positive, good, God-honoring decisions, we are kind of moving in many ways like this big flywheel, so to speak, in our family system. And it takes a little while to get the momentum going. And you kind of get that thing going in the right direction, and all of a sudden it can become multi-generational, right? Where you start doing the next right thing, and then the next right thing, and then the next right thing. But here's what's true. It's important to get the flywheel going by building a lifestyle of doing the next right thing. But it doesn't guarantee that my kids are going to do the next right thing. They get to choose. But what I get to do and what I am mandated to do according to scripture is to provide an ethos or an environment where it becomes so natural for them to do the next right thing. I'm not responsible for what they do, but I am responsible for me and creating an environment so that my kids can have a good shot at life where this sin pattern doesn't become overwhelming and almost, what's the word for it? Create a, an environment of deficit for them. This is what Moses is saying. Make sure you get that flywheel going. Tell your kids the story of your faith. Keep it going in the right direction. Build that environment. Don't forget, hold tightly to it. So parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents have great influence over emerging generations. This is the truth. Thanks be to God for godly parents, for godly grandparents, godly great-grandparents, if we've had the privilege of having that experience. Many of us in this room have not had that experience. We might be a first-generation Christian, but you get to live awake coming behind you. This is one of the reasons why I love our Jewish friends and what they do. They take very seriously telling the story to the next generation. When they celebrate the Seder meal or Passover, they tell the story, and they tell the story as though they were there. So moms and dads, caregivers, grandparents, great-grandparents, spiritual grandparents, don't stop making an investment in your kids. If you have to have a hard conversation, have a hard conversation. Do it with love and grace and be crystal clear about what's most important to you. And first and foremost, make sure primary is primary and secondary is secondary and get the order right so the kids are not confused. Be fully devoted to Jesus. Be on a search that doesn't stop. Give yourself wholeheartedly to them, to God and to them. And then let him do all the rest of the work. Let me finish with this. One last quote. I really like this. This is written by Rachel S. Mikvah. She says, The gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And we will worship something. Have no doubt about that either. We may think that our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of the heart, but it will play out. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our life and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we are worshiping, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And so the word of the Lord for us today, with the second saying, the second commandment is, don't make anything, any creature, don't give it creator characteristics Keep the one true God at the very center. Make sure he stays primary and let everything else be secondary or tertiary at best. Amen to that?
All right, the word of the Lord for us today, an invitation. Lord Jesus, thank you today for your word, both testaments. Thank you that you've inspired the older and the new testaments for our good. Lord, help us to read it responsibly. Help us to meditate on it, as the psalmist says, day and night. May it come into us. May it form us. May it change us. May it call the best out of us. May it convict us. May it correct us. May your word, as your spirit applies it, may it lead us to Christ, to the Father, to the Spirit, where we would know the one true God in a way, Lord, that will help us become more fully claimed and formed images of God. So, Lord, we choose today to push back against those competitive Um, forces that might invite us to bend the knee. Help us, Lord, to love and honor you wholeheartedly, always. And when we get it wrong, Lord, would you nudge us gently towards the center again and help us to give ourselves to what matters most. Lord, every one of us in this room today will not be on the planet 100 years from now, very likely. And so we ask you, God, to make the most of the days we've been granted under the sun. And help us, Lord, to live wisely, worshiping always the one true God in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.